Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We're going to go to Matthew 14 today, but before we do, just a quick setup. Um, I think today's a perfect day to revisit our author, right? At the beginning of the message series, when we kicked it off in January, I gave you some context for Matthew and who he was and why he was talking about this book. And now is a perfect time to revisit this because it's going to be important a little bit for Matthew chapter 14. He, Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. He was actually one of the guys who was walking with Jesus. So when he writes this book, this is firsthand accounts. This is not what he heard somebody say about some situation. He was there, he heard Jesus say these words. Um, he was originally a tax collector. He was a Jewish um, um, disciple of Jesus. And so his audience that he's writing to is primarily a Jewish audience. First century Jews that converted to uh, follow Jesus, um, they got a lot of questions about, well, uh, how much do we need to bring with us? How much do we need to follow of the Old Testament? How, many, how much of the covenant is, is fulfilled? How does all that work? Um, and so within this book is a lot of references to um, the Old Testament, um, the Hebrew Bible that these guys would have been very familiar with. Um, uh, he references Isaiah a lot. We've already hit Isaiah numerous times um, in the way Matthew quotes the Old Testament, um, foreshadowing Jesus. He's like, okay, we know that this was here. Isaiah said this is how Jesus was going to do things, and, and he did it. Um, so in addition to just the prophecy uh, being kind of sprinkled in with the story, Matthew is starting to introduce us to some of these types and shadows of how things in the Old Testament um, weren't these standalone ideas, but they were actually signposts pointing to something greater. And we're going to see one of those today. Um, so uh, I, I just want to hit, hit pause on that because we'll come back to it, but I want to manage your expectations about where we're going because he's done that um, moving forward. He's going to show us a lot of types and shadows of how Christ is the better uh, Moses, for example. But he's also, in the previous couple chapters, 11, 12, 13, shown us different responses to Jesus. We've seen people, when Jesus shows up on the scene, their response to him is just indifferent. Uh, I take it or leave it. Some people are full of rage and anger. They, they want to snuff him out. They want to get rid of him. They want to plot against him. And another response that we saw last week um, was the idea of being able to treasure Jesus. And so as Matthew's writing in this book, he is writing for this first century audience, but he's also writing for us. And his perspective is, I'm going to give you all the stuff that happened, but not just for an information transfer. This is not just for historical record. I'm giving you this stuff in a way so that when you read it, your response is, ah, I, I, I have to respond to that. So, so when you see the people of, of Israel respond to Jesus with indifference, the question you have to ask in your heart, is that, is that how I respond to Jesus? Do I care when he walks into the room? Am I plotting against him in ways where I'm trying to set my own kingdom up against him? Or am I treasuring him regularly? So when we read the responses, where it's a question. Okay, well, I see that this has happened. That's happened in here. Is this a thing that I'm guilty of? And so in this chapter, chapter 14, we're going to see both of those. We're going to see another response to Jesus, and we're also going to see this idea of these Old Testament par parallels. Um, so... Uh, let's go ahead and get into the Old Testament parallels um, and uh, 
the people who are responding to Jesus in chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 1, and the first story is going to be Matthew giving us a recount of this guy named John the Baptist. And as we're reading this, I want you to think about uh, one main idea. And the idea is that as, as Matthew is kind of rolling these things out, his, his, his main point is that Jesus is, is what it's all about. It's kind of a cheesy way of saying it, but the idea is that everything that's happened previous, everything that is currently happening, and everything that will happen in the future, everything terminates at Jesus. So there are many ways to respond to Jesus, but ultimately, you're gonna to have to respond to Jesus. There's no path you can walk in life where you won't have to be confronted with Jesus. So you can be indifferent, but it's still indifference about Jesus. You can be passionate, and treasure him, but that's about Jesus. You can be angry and, and rageful and plot against his kingdom, but you're plotting against the kingdom of Jesus. And when you look at these Old Testament shadows, all of these things that happened in the Old Testament, none of them were an end unto themselves. All of them were signposts pointing to Jesus. Which means that if everything we have in here was about Jesus, and every response we have is about Jesus, that means every single thing that happens in your life terminates at Jesus. All of your value systems, the way you do your job, the way you talk to your family, the way you manage your money, the way you manage your calendar, everything. It's almost like, like think of it this way. Everything in your life is a river that ends at the ocean that is Jesus. Everything is about him. And the reason why is because one day, you will stand before Jesus and you will give an account for every word you ever spoke and every deed you ever had here on earth. Meaning, everything, as small as you may think it is, as large as you may think it is, the way you treat your job, the way you view everything in life will be measured and weighed when you stand before Jesus. The weightiness of that for people who say, I don't even believe in Jesus. The weightiness of that for church people who wanna make church and, and, and the kingdom of God about everything but Jesus. Everything flows to one place. It's all about him. And you're gonna see that everywhere. Matthew starts giving us little winks and nods about it. But I'm telling you, this is one of the things, once you start seeing it, you can't unsee it. Because it is the only thing that is worth seeing in your life. I'm telling you. It softens your heart, it changes your value system. When you choose to start looking at life this way, that everything flows ultimately to the glorification and the beautification and the worship and the lifting up of Jesus, then everything stops seeming so minuscule and unimportant. Even your hobbies, your job, everything, it's about Jesus. So think on that as we get into this chapter about Jesus, all right? Matthew 14, verse one, it says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. All right, so Herod finally heard about Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. 
That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, from here down to about 12, verse 12, Matthew is going to give us some background on things that have happened previously so we can understand what happened to John the Baptist. Because the last thing we heard, he was in prison sending his disciples to Jesus asking, are you really the one? What happened to him since? Verse three, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, Herod did. Herod feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, so his stepdaughter, danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was very sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. All right, so just a quick little background, because Matthew's readers are familiar with the story, but we may not necessarily be. So there were a lot of Herods in the New Testament. You've got Herod the Great. He was the guy who, uh, he was kind of the first one. He was the the, uh, puppet king of Rome. He was the one who issued the decree to kill all of the babies when Jesus was born. He died shortly after that event, and his three sons, all who were named Herod, kind of like George Foreman, all of his kids are named George. Herod, he's got three boys, they're all, they all go by Herod. They get their kingdom split up in three different kind of regions. One of the regions that one of the Herods, which is this Herod, ruled over was the northern region up around Galilee. Now, another one of the regions that another one of the Herods uh, ruled was outside of this area. They kind of split Israel uh, up into like like kind of three sections. Well, this Herod saw his brother Herod's wife and had feelings for her, loved her. The problem was with this Herod, he was already married. So this Herod, this guy here in 14, he divorced his wife and convinced Herodias, his brother's wife, to divorce him so that they could marry. So we split two marriages, and then Herod marries Herodias. They get together, and Herodias brings her daughter into the marriage. And John the Baptist, the prophet of Israel, stands up and says, look, this is sin. It doesn't matter how much you loved each other. This is sin, and you need to repent of it. Herod didn't like that. So what Herod does is he puts John the Baptist in prison. Well, on his birthday, his sister-in-law, or his daughter-in-law, is, is, uh, or his stepdaughter, is dancing for him, and he loves it because he's drunk, the whole party's drunk. And he makes a promise. Man, that was, so, that was some good dancing, so... As a payment, I'll give you anything that you want. And this girl, she's like, I want the man who is bad-mouthing my mom. 
I want his head on a platter. And Herod's like, oh, that's the one thing I didn't want you to ask for. So he kills John the Baptist, serves his head on a platter. And this is what Matthew is referring to. Now that we have some background, it's important to understand why this is important. It's important to know the background because it gives us context for the kind of man that Herod saw himself as. Herod was the kind of guy who lived for himself and did whatever he want because ultimately he saw himself as the rightful king over the region of Israel. Now he was not a king, but he saw himself as king. And so what happens is when you act like that, when you act like the king of your own domain and you call the shots and you make whatever rules you want to because you're the king, when another king shows up and says, I have authority over you, you either submit or you reject. And this, that's why this is important, because it brings us back up to the first two verses that shows us about Herod's response to Jesus. Herod rejected that Jesus was the king and is who he says he was because there can't be another king because I'm king. Therefore, the only logical conclusion is not that this guy is king and has authority, it's probably John the Baptist back from the dead to haunt me. Now, why is that important? Because Herod's response to Jesus, we can put in the category of all the other responses to Jesus. We've had indifference, we've had anger and rage, we've had treasuring, and now we've got superstition. The idea that this can't really be Jesus, it's gotta be somebody or something else. And the reason why it's gotta be somebody or something else is because no one has authority over me, therefore I'm gonna explain away this relationship and authority of God with something that I can control. You following? Superstition has deep roots in humanity. Superstition is the, it's, it's our way of explaining away things. It's our way of manipulating things. It's our way of saying, okay, God, I see that you are sovereign and you are all powerful, but I'm convinced that I can manipulate that power to serve my purposes. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna create little trinkets. I'm gonna do little rituals in order to bend your will to mine. I'm gonna convince that all power should be bent to serve my purposes because look at the things that I've done for you. And so what happens is the relationship between God stops being about obedience and surrender and it turns into like appeasement and this, this thing of sacrifice. I'll make this sacrifice and then you'll do this thing for me. Or the gods are mad at me and so I'm gonna make this a, a, appeasement. And what it, what it translates to is, is homes that have like crosses on the wall, but the people in the home never go to church. It translates to the family Bible that sits out in front of everybody, but no one reads. There's superstitious representations of us being tied to some concept of a great holy God, but there's no submission or obedience to what he asks us to do, because we're convinced that we can get him to serve our purposes. Now, this idea of superstition 
is how I would describe a lot of our interactions with God within church. We see in scripture that we're supposed to be obedient, but that obedience doesn't necessarily get us what we want. And so what we do is we use prayer and worship and study and relationship and going to church, um, not as acts of devotion, but as acts of manipulation. I'm gonna do these things because they're gonna get me to the place I wanna be at. No, that's, that's superstition, that's manipulation. That's not a relationship. Imagine if your marriage was set up like that. Yeah, imagine if your marriage was set up like that. That nothing that you did in your marriage was an overflow of your genuine love and affection for your spouse, but it was to get them to do something that you wanted them to do. Or to make sure that they don't do something that you don't want them to do. Superstition. It's the equivalent of wearing your lucky socks when your favorite team is playing. Because you're convinced that somehow you have control over that team on the television because of the socks you're wearing. Deep down we know it's ridiculous, but we still do it because it gives us a sense of control. And that's what superstition is really about. Herod's response to Jesus was a superstitious response because he did not want to enter the, entertain the idea that he had to relinquish any control to a greater, higher, more authoritative king. And we struggle with the same thing today. We don't like the idea of having to submit to a higher authority or go check our thought life or our decisions with a holy God so that we are more in line with him. We'd rather just do uh, the, 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 the simple things of like, well, I went to church this week. What more do you want from me, God? I sang. I don't normally sing, so that was a big step for me. And could you imagine a holy God? Man, I'm just so proud of that baby step you took. You actually sang. Really? The way that we view our relationship with God, it's comical. He invented everything we see and we think that we can con him into giving us our way by some small little manipulative trinket that shows some fake reflection of obedience. It's comical, but we do it. Our relationship to him often boils down to just a few things that we think we should do to appease a holy God when we're told in Scripture that everything that needed to be done to appease a holy God has already been accomplished in Christ, and our obedience to Him is simply overflow and affection and submission to Him. So when we're told in Scripture that this is sin, our response is, but you don't understand. No, you don't understand. You're wrong. It's sin. So you need to repent, stop acting like this was a good thing, it was a bad thing, repent of it, and let him heal you. Stop pretending this is not a thing that he needs to heal. You were wrong. You need to repent, and you need to experience healing. Now, at this point, um, we ask ourselves, okay, what aspects of our relationship look more like superstition than surrender. Because we're about to move on to um, Jesus feeding the 5,000, um, and it's just really easy for us to look at Herod and say, ah, Herod, what an idiot. <laughs> what was he thinking, right? But not to say, ah, Marshall, God, he's an idiot. What was I thinking? 
What was I thinking in that moment? What was I thinking in that moment? The Holy Spirit has a way of highlighting the failures of others to get you to open your eyes to the failures that you have on a regular basis. Because the way you're living, it ain't cutting it. There are areas of your life that you haven't surrendered where Jesus is just screaming, let go, stop trying to hold on. And this is one of those moments. When you're confronted with somebody in the scripture, you just say, man, I'm glad I'm not that guy. I got bad news, you are that guy. I'm that guy, we're all that guy. So, so let's stop pretending that this is the bad guy and let's start doing the deep work of realizing that there's a, there's a lot of Herod on the inside of us. There's a lot of manipulation we would go to in order to get what we want out of life and that's the reason why Jesus had to die on the cross because of that Herod that lives deep down on the inside of you. So let's stop pretending like we're so peachy and perfect and let's be broken on the rock because if we're not, we're promised that the rock is gonna break us. Amen? All right, so let's go to verse uh, 13. It says, when Jesus heard this, the news of John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we only have five loaves here and, and two fish. And he said, them, bring, bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, and he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Just 5,000 men, not even the women and the children. And they all ate off of five loaves and two fish. Now, when I started today, I talked about the idea of everything emptying out at Jesus. He's what everything's all about. And I talked about types and shadows and illustrations. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine this scenario. A bunch of Hebrews, and they're out in the desert, and they're hungry, and they're broken, and they're looking for leadership. Is there anywhere else in Scripture where this sounds familiar? For the Jewish audience that Matthew's writing to, does this moment sound like any other moment in history? For the Jewish reader reading this, this does sound familiar. This rings a bell because this moment looks a lot like Exodus, where there was a group of Hebrews out in the middle of the desert hungry and broken. And at that moment you had Moses standing before the people saying the Lord is gonna provide for you and they got manna. But at this moment, you've got something greater than Moses. You've got Jesus. And he multiplies the little that they have to feed over 5,000 people. Now the parallel and the types and shadows of this are important for this audience because what Matthew is saying is that Jesus is 
greater than Moses. But it's bigger than that concept of the sentence, like Jesus is greater than Moses. Okay, like the idea of Jesus, Jesus himself is greater than Moses. That is one point. But the other idea of what, what Moses stood for, Jesus is greater than that too. Because what Moses was, was essentially the hero for all of Israel. He was everything. He was the one that led them out of Egypt. If it wasn't for them, they'd still be in slavery. He was the one who was speaking on behalf between them and God and from God to them. He was like a giant standing in the history of Israel. And Jesus is standing here and Matthew is telling the story framed in a way that says, look, the most influential man the greatest hero of our generation, of our, of our history, was really only a billboard pointing to Jesus. So you're telling me that the greatest thing that we could possibly imagine wasn't even really the greatest thing, it was just one thing else that was pointing us to Jesus. Yes, that's what Matthew is saying. And the way he's telling the story, he's portraying it to make it crystal clear that Jesus has been the thing all along. Now, what does that mean for us? If Matthew is telling his audience, look, the, 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 the greatest thing in our history, the thing we all agree, it's great, it's the greatest, right? Yes, it's the greatest. That that thing wasn't actually even great, its only purpose was to point us to something even greater, then that means everything in our life, all of the greatest moments in our life, even the greatest things in our life are only designed in a way to lead us back to Jesus. Now this is a principle that I, I, I hit on at the beginning, but it's important. This is a fundamental of our Christian faith. The idea that nothing that we do is an end unto itself. The job that you have, the small business that you've built into a, a success, that is not for you, that is for him. That is for his glory and for him to do as he sees fit. The family that you have, it's not your family, it's his family. Those kids, they're not your kids. They're his kids. Your spouse, they belong to the Lord. This church, not my church, not your church. It's so funny when I meet new people and they're talking to me like, oh yeah, I go to your church. Not my church. This is Jesus' church. He's in charge. He's the one over this church. He's the one over every church. So it doesn't matter what we're talking about. If we're talking about your business, we're talking about success, we're talking about wealth, we're talking about your marriage, we're talking about your own personal spiritual fruit, what you're growing on your own spiritual tree. Even that, that's not the goal. The goal is not to just be a tree full of spiritual fruit. I am a person who's so peaceful and loving and so full of joy. Great, but that's not the end goal. That serves a greater purpose. Why are we trying to be fruitful Christians? So that he can use that fruit to feed the nations. So that when people see fruitful trees, they say, how are you so fruitful when the soil around here is so bad? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. Everything empties into Jesus. And if you start thinking that way, then everything that you do, every decision you make, every subtle word that you speak, you understand starts feeding into the glory 
the edification, the lifting up, the magnification of Jesus himself. And all of a sudden, you stop thinking about you and your life and your success and your business and what you've accomplished and how many kids you have and whether they're doing good or whether they're doing bad. All of that stuff starts fading away because you start realizing that that isn't the goal. Because all of us have a tendency to run as fast and as hard as we possibly can to the thing that we set as the goal. If I can achieve this, then I will have really achieved something. But once you get it, you realize, man, it just kind of feels empty because that thing was never the goal. You made it the goal, and the Bible would call that an idol. But the goal is never the goal unto itself. The goal is always to be fruitful, to use these great things for the magnification of Jesus. That's how you become salt. That's how you become a city on a hill. That's how you become light. Because every great thing is not an end to itself. It points us to the greater thing that is Jesus. You follow? This is a tough concept, and you will wrestle with it for the rest of your life. But if you can start scratching the surface on this, all of a sudden it will start framing everything in your life out differently. You'll start reacting to situations differently. You'll start treating yourself differently because the end goal is not your personal happiness. God wants you filled with joy, but not just so you're a person filled with joy. He wants you filled with joy because he wants to use you in building his kingdom. This is, this is why he pours himself out on the people, not just so we get more of him, so that in being filled with him, we can make him the big deal. We can magnify him, amen? All right, so let's do this. <clears throat> let's look at the middle of what's happening in this revelation because there's something really unique about how the disciples are reacting. In the middle of this understanding that all great things in life are not an end to themselves, they point to Jesus, and we should live that way. In the middle of this, you see the disciples start realizing this. In verses 14 and 15, when they went ashore and he saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, now this is a desolate place and the day's now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So what we see is that Jesus in verse 14 is showing compassion. He looks at the crowd and he's like, man, my heart is moved for these people. And in like, in kind, in verse 15, the disciples come up and say, we're moved with compassion. Let's go ahead and send these folks home because it's getting late and they should buy food for their families. We shouldn't keep them here too long. Now, you could read this with a cynical view and say, oh, the disciples, they just want the crowds around. They wanted Jesus to themselves. But that's not how Matthew, who was there, tells us how the story went down. He tells us that the disciples had genuine compassion and they wanted the people to go and get food and so what you see is a group of guys who've been hanging out with Jesus and they're starting to be changed by what they see. They watch him move with compassion and so they are then moved with compassion. So what does that teach us about how disciples should be in the process of following Jesus? It means that if you are getting harder or colder or more cynical, then you are not walking with Jesus. That's a hard stop. That is a tough reality, but it's the truth. Especially in my 20 years of ministry, when I watch the way that God works on people, when he's really at work, when he's really 
deep at work in the hearts of the people. What do you see on the other side? You see people who are, man, they get more tender, softer, more compassionate. They're more loving. They're not colder or more bitter or more angry. They're more forgiving. They're more loving. They're more compassionate. And so if this is the contrast that we have, if this is what's happening to the disciples, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I walking with Jesus? Based off the fruit that I see, am I actually walking with my king? Or am I probably having some superstitious response to this relationship where I'm not actually submitting to anything. I'm just doing the things that I think need to get done to appease a God so that ultimately I can serve my own ends. This is tough. Because it starts digging into not just what we think or what we believe, it starts digging into the way we live. And that's very uncomfortable. Because when you look at the fruit of the Spirit, when you look at the way Paul looked at the end of his life, when you look at the Apostle John, starts as like, man, the sons of thunder. That's a pretty wild, I mean, you can just imagine what kind of guys those were. You know, they, John was the kind of guy who walked in, they start disrespecting Jesus. Jesus, should we go ahead and like call fire down out of heaven on these guys? Should we do it now? So at the end of the light, at the end, the end of his life, he's, he's the guy who's just at, at the dinner, man, uh, or at the end of Jesus' life, he's at the dinner and he's just resting his head on Jesus' chest. And he's just like, man, I love you, Jesus. That's a very different guy, right? I, I, I want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy at the very beginning of the process who never changes. I don't want to walk with Jesus for 30 years and still be the guy saying, all right, well, I'm going to call down fire out of heaven from you, on, on top of you be that guy. I want to be the guy who's walking with Jesus, watching him show compassion on the people who are the hardest to show compassion on, and I want to be moved with compassion for those people. That's what I want, and I think that that's what we see in the disciples, and I think that's what we should want in following him. Let's go to verse 22. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, and he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. An evening came, and he was there alone, but the boat by this time well, it was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, probably around three or four in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, oh, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered, Lord, if it is you, command me to walk out on the water with you. I love that. My kind of man. You see Jesus doing that? Like, I want to do that too. Call me out there, please. Can I do that? I want to do that. Right? This is like the kid. Can I try? I want to do that. None of the other disciples do it, but Peter's like, come on, I want to try it. So, so Jesus says, come on, Peter. Come. So Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And he was beginning to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took, him, took hold of him and, and started saying, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? 
Oh, okay, that's important. So doubting and faith was a big part of being able to walk on water. Got it. And they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, here's what I want to touch on real quick in this. This section is really, is, is really awesome because it teaches us a lot about leadership style uh, of Jesus. And I think that this is important because we should take notes for this. When Jesus does something with his disciples, he's telling us about the way that leadership within the kingdom of God works. So what you see here is around 3 to 4 a.m., you've got these guys who are in this boat. And it's so funny because they're experienced fishermen, but they keep getting caught in these storms. Like, come on, guys, like, do you even know what you're doing? It's three or four in the morning, they're caught up in a storm, Jesus starts walking out on the water, and the moment they realize that it's Jesus, Peter seizes the moment, he's like, can I come out on the water? And Jesus is like, yeah, come on. And after he says, come, that's all Jesus says, come on, Peter steps out and he starts sinking. And at that moment, once he starts failing, Jesus tells Peter why he failed. You have little faith. He started doubting. Now, for just a moment, just for giggles, I want to replay this moment in a different way to illustrate Jesus' leadership style. So imagine Peter standing on the boat saying, Jesus, please, can I come out there with you? Can I walk on the water too? I want to do this. Now imagine Jesus responding and said, yes, you can. But just remember, when you step out of the boat, eyes on me, okay? Now, when you take your first step, it's going to be a little shaky because water's not like land. So when you step out on the boat, make sure that you keep faith. Eyes on me, keep the faith, don't doubt. When you're walking out here, Peter, there's gonna be lots of wind and waves, there's gonna be lots of noise, ignore that, okay? That's important, ignore that. Lots of faith, no doubting, walk on me, let's go. That's not what happens. Why is that not what happens? Because Jesus doesn't give you the lesson before you try. He shows you where you fail when you start sinking. Now, why is that important? Because that is the opposite of how all of us would do it. The second example is how we would teach people. If we're, we're talking about a church situation, we're talking about um, uh, your, your, your job situation, we're talking about with your kids, right? We, we feel like before we can start, we've got to have a manual for how this thing works because we don't want to fail. We don't want to mess up. Because failure is bad. Failure means embarrassment. And I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to fail. And so I'm not even going to try until I know I can get it perfect. I got bad news for you. That's not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God works by leveraging the fact that you're, not if you're going to fail, when you're going to fail. You are going to fail. And the reason why he allows you to fall flat on your face is because you always learn more in failing than succeeding. Because when you succeed, you immediately start thinking, well, I did pretty good. Look what I accomplished. And when you start thinking, look at how much I accomplished, guess what you're not thinking about? Look at what God did through me. But when you fail, you immediately cry out, Jesus saved me. You've got to go to him. And so from start to finish, it's always about him. And in the failing is where you learn the most. And so when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to businesses, when it comes to your family, you have to stop being so afraid of failing because failing is how the kingdom of God is structured to teach you things. We're convinced that, that I'm going to be able to 
follow some manual and get some classes and, and, and get all the knowledge I can, and then when I'm equipped and I'm ready, then I can be obedient. I'll be, I'll be able to be obedient and follow what he says once all of my training is done. I, but the truth is, and in the kingdom of God, the training is the obedience. The stepping out without the knowing, that's where you get the obedience, that's where you get the training. You start learning how to follow him by not sitting back and thinking about it or getting around with some friends and talking about it, but actually putting one foot in front of the other and actually doing it. And when you do it, you will fail. But when you fail, you'll learn and you'll grow and then you'll be able to guide others and you'll be able to use be, you will be able to be used by God. And that's important about the way that the kingdom of God works because one, it lets most of you off of the hook of feeling like, well, I can't do that because I'm not ready. Now there's a difference between being disqualified because of sin and just not doing it because you're, you feel unequipped. I'm not talking about the first one. I'm not talking about things that you've done in your life that have disqualified you from certain aspects of ministry. Right, if, you're if, you're, you're, if you're a convicted sex offender, like you're never working in children's church, ever. Like God can forgive you, you can repent, you can move on from that, you can get healed, you can get delivered, but there are some things you're just never, ever, ever going to be able to do in ministry ever again. But that's different than us sitting back and saying, I know God's telling me to do some stuff, but I'm probably not ready for it. I don't know enough. I know I'm supposed to open my home and you know, invite people over and, and run a small group. I'm, I'm not, no, I'm supposed to join this team, but like I, God's been moving on me. I'm supposed to come over and join the prayer team. We're supposed to join the music team, but I don't know enough. I'm not ready. I got, I, if you stay there, you'll never be ready. The only way you'll get ready is by getting in and doing it. You have to take the first step and you're going to fail, but I promise you're gonna learn more in the failure than you will and just sitting there not doing anything or in the perceived success of barely trying and not really pulling anything off. So let's get to the end of this. Verse 34 says, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of this place recognized Jesus, they sent out around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, they were made well. So Matthew starts this chapter with a man who refused to recognize Jesus. And he ends this chapter with an entire village who affirm and recognize Jesus. Now these comparisons are all throughout the Bible. We see it in this chapter, but we see it all throughout other places. We see it in modern day church. Two people seeing the exact same thing and walking away with different conclusions. Why is that a thing? Why is that in scripture? Because those comparisons act as a scale to beg the question in our life, what side do you fall on? It is not a different Jesus that this person was confronted with and this person was confronted with. It was not a different church service. It was not a different song. It was not a different message. It was the same guy saying the same thing to, the, to two people in the room hearing the exact same thing, but one person walked away offended and one person walked away broken. 
The comparison of those moments, the comparison of that kind of stuff in Scripture is designed in order to act like a scale and weigh our hearts. Where do you fall in your response to Jesus? He's not changing. He's saying the same thing. Why is it that one person responds this way and another responds this way? So in the comparisons, in reading this chapter, we walk away with some serious questions we have to ask ourselves. Is my obedience to Jesus marked by superstition or rituals? Can I see the grace of God changing me in regards to the way that I see people? Am I crying out to Jesus as I sink under the weight of my own mistakes? Am I affirming Jesus as king like the guys in this village and bringing everybody that I know to him? The Holy Spirit is using scripture today to ask questions deep on the inside of our heart to weigh where we are. It's important because without that, we can become our own best salesmen by selling ourselves stuff that we don't need and convincing ourselves that we are people that we are not. So when we submit ourselves to scripture, we're confronted with the truth, not your truth, the truth. And it forces us to reassess some things in our life. So today, as we leave, the question is, is my life all about Jesus so that everything flows and empties into the glorious majesty that is Jesus, or is this life that I'm living all about me? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.